All right. I am Kevin Libwit, joined by Andrew Page. We are from Fiagen, and this is the Bioinformatics Lab podcast. And today we're going to be talking about public health, bioinformatics, and the sort of unique role it plays in the world of pathogen genomics. Andrew, you and I both come from kind of the different sides of the, the coin here, where my career really started in public health bioinformatics and working for a state lab directly in Virginia, in the U.S., and you spending most of your career really on the academic side. Um, and, you know, I, I come from academia in the way that, you know, I was trained in university and things like this, but never really had the professional experience in working as a professor in, you know, leading a laboratory the way that you have. So you really have kind of a perspective on both sides of this uh, in, in, throughout your career. So maybe we can even start from, from your end. How stark are the differences coming from academia and uh, now being more involved in the sort of applied public health and, and your role in things like COG-UK? Well, I guess there's like such big differences between academia and then your, you know, your production public health labs and then your clinical labs, you know, and then on the other side is, you know, commercial research. So each one of these, they all have their different needs. And I've only had uh, insights into, you know, some of them and you've had insights into public health side, like, but academia is very loosey goosey. You know, you can get away with not doing controls. You can, you, you know, you you can experiment, you can really very rapidly try something out and fail quickly, or you can spend a lot of time, you know, going very deep into something that maybe isn't of too much interest to, to the world, but it's, you know, of interest to a teeny tiny little niche. And you can do that kind of blue skies research. But then you get to like your, your side in public health, like that's very different, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think that was the biggest change I had to come to, to adopt whenever I went from my university experience as a graduate student in research projects where it was kind of exploring everything. I was building things on my own. I can ask whatever question would sort of pique my curiosity and interest. But then coming into the Virginia State Public Health Laboratory, something that was instilled in me from the beginning from our director, Dr. Denise Tony, was the quality, validating, and reproducibility. Like if I was going to do some sort of or bring up some sort of scientific finding, I had to be able to document everything that I did and I had to be sure that I was able to reproduce it and show that this is quality results, which, of course, there's a conversation in academia of quality and reproducibility and things like this. But there's certainly a different standard uh, that, that it's held to in, in uh, public health because it's not just sort of scratching an academic curiosity. It's going to inform action. You know, you have to be able to stand by it. And so it's going to, you know, deploy resources at, at the at the government level with epidemiologists who may end up, um, you know, at, at the first level investigating the, the outbreak investigation or the spread of the disease. But this could also lead to, you know, legal action in terms of taking food products off the shelf or, or shutting down a restaurant in the case of foodborne pathogens. So there's a higher level of scrutiny to the methods being employed and um, the validity of the results. Absolutely. And I know uh, when we would, you know, I'd do stuff, right? And I'd say, oh, yeah, you know, this is easy. It'll only take, you know, a couple of minutes. We can knock out a bash script, do a bit of analysis. There you go. And, you know, beyond samples, which are collected over many years and, you know, no one's going to die from, uh, you know, whether I publish this week or next week or whatever, or if the results are wrong, you know, it's it's not critical. And it's very different than, you know, because it's easy to do something once academically, but it's hard to do it, you know, a thousand times, 10,000 times to high accuracy and, you know, working every time, uh, you know, minimal errors, checks and balances everywhere. 
I think that that kind of nails it. Like the intent in the academic sphere is like is to the the, the curiosity, explore the the frontiers, and test around. And if it's wrong, it's part of the scientific conversation. Whereas in the public health side, if it's wrong, it's going to impact people's lives explicitly. So that's why there, there's that sort of added barrier, not added barrier, rather added scrutiny, added layers of checks and balances and, and validation that uh, comes along with in the public health side. Um, and then I, I think even beyond just the intent, it's there's a whole workforce, there's the whole uh, resource availability and um, that the side of implementation. I think that in general, I also look at the role of academia is sort of the technical innovators, where, whereas in public health, I thought it was really important for my role is to be aware of the technical innovation and figure out how do I implement those innovations. So for example, whereas you as an academic might be writing something like Govins or Rory, on my end, I'm figuring out, okay, I'm watching the literature happen and realizing, okay, these are very useful resources. How then, I'm not going to write another Govins, rather, I'm going to try to figure out how do I use Govins to inform the public health uh, action that, that I care to inform. Whereas in academia, I would say, oh, that's a nice method, but I'm going to write it myself. Yeah, or I'm going to yeah. get a postdoc to do the same thing, even though it's been done 10 times already. And that's how you end up with, you know, dozens of different uh, reader liners and assemblers and you know, lots of things to solve the same problem effectively because people go, oh yeah, I can do that. I don't, I don't want to spend the time learning how to use something else or reading something. But actually, and a very important thing is um, in academic bioinformatics, the half-life of a, of a tool is only about like three years, you know, tools come and go, methods come and go very, very, very rapidly and they don't stick around. Um, so it's very rare, say Gubbins and, and Rory are rare exceptions where they've stuck around for nearly a decade, you know. Most things do not. They just, kind of, you know, flash in the pan. There yeah. is probably a PhD student or postdoc doesn't work, then they leave and that's it's gone. There's no more support. It's just there. It's it's orphaned. Okay. And that's the kind of interesting overlap with public health and academia that we always have to confront where we're watching the innovation happen and then we work to the implementation. But sometimes we might be implementing a tool that's supported by a postdoc that's on their way out. So you have these stale repositories, you know it's functional, but you need to implement that tool. So that's where you see a lot of the overlap of like the technical developers in the public health space. Again, it's not always with the intent to innovate a new algorithm assembler or otherwise, but it's how do I now support this tool? How do I ensure that there's a life in this? And that's a you know, that's been a role that we've been trying to play at Fusion for sure is yeah, I don't know. Yeah, ensuring that these tools continue to work, you know, it, it is very, very hard, actually, like because <clears throat> you think, OK, I've built a tool, I've made it available in Conda or whatever, but there is maintenance or it's required because all your stuff underneath, you know, changes, things get deprecated, languages get, you know, try yeah. out, security holes appear. And so you do need that kind of underlying, you know, maintenance, just tweaking things, fixing things, making sure it keeps going. And if people don't do that. The tool is, you know, going to die like pretty quick. And that often happens. So, but but I think one way we've seen that at least somewhat solved is with containerization, and that you have these standalone tools that are that are uh, functional in the environments that they're written in in these sort of uh, containerized software. So at least you know with certain conditions that it's going to be static, it's going to be reproducible, and you know what's coming. You know, with an understanding of what's going in, you're going to have an understanding of what's going out. So even with tools that sort of get abandoned, at least if it's in a static state that's been validated, we can continue using that tool with, with some level of confidence there. Absolutely. And again, that's a difference between academia and uh, public health, yeah. you know, where 
we don't really care. We want the latest and greatest. And if you publish a paper, it, you'll you'll get flack for why didn't you use the latest version? You know, this is version you know three you've used, and yeah. there's version five is out, and you should have been using that in the latest database. But actually, you do need to you know put your a line in the sand and say no, this is what we're using, and we're going to validate. We're going to check against that and make sure absolutely that the results are correct. Oh, and, and and it's it's really funny that you say that because the exact not ex- opposite conversation, but the the. Uh, the other hesitation is there on the public health side. We know this works. Why I need the burden of proof to tell me why I need to update the latest version of any component of the software because there's a whole validation effort that's going to be required to ensure that there's no unintended consequences when I even just you know change the library version or whatever it is uh, throughout the whole workflow. So yeah, there, there is that different focus there. There's there's an intent for stability um, on public health uh, again based on. What the intent is there. Um, and, and I think we can even speak about the reproducibility things. You know, I, I'm speaking as a graduate student here, but like when I was writing tools, I was the only one who needed to really run them. And it was like maybe somebody else on in my team. And then there's a, a conversation of when I was developing, it was almost really specific to my environment. And this is its own t- kind of conversation of um, sort of the portability of tools, but it really only needed to work on my machine. And, and even whenever we're, we're sharing the results and things like that, people can kind of follow my analysis and it, and it felt appropriate. But when I'm in public health, especially when I start in Virginia, when I'm writing a tool, I'm always writing it with the intent that there's going to be many other users. I need to write it with the intent where not only in my laboratory, but uh, across jurisdictions, because, you know, the, these outbreaks and these investigations cross borders for sure. So I want to be, be able to ensure that there's reproducibility of analysis, even across different compute environments. And that was a huge change uh, coming from my graduate experience into public health. Actually, I found that uh, when I start working on a, on a new uh, software repository or a new tool, one of the best things I found is actually writing a Docker container at the same time, if, if there isn't mm-hmm. one already. It's because then you can go along and you you absolutely know what's going to go into that environment. And, you know, it's often like you, you run it, it fails, you add something, you know, and you have this kind of iterative process. But at least you have in one simple file, you have all the dependencies listed out. There's nothing, you know, that's you for, forgot that you'd actually installed it two weeks ago or two months ago or something like that. Not, nothing obscure or you've edited something. You absolutely know that when you build that Docker container, that is the environment your software will absolutely run in. And I find that to be really, really useful. What about the, the challenges in workforce and training and things in academia versus public health? Because that's been interesting, too, because you talk about, you know, in academia, there's inherently an affinity to the cutting edge. So I think you have students who in a workforce that are always on the cutting edge, whereas in public health, again, it's, it's a little bit more stable and slow moving with purpose. It's slow moving with an intent. Right. Um so that's been a challenge, I think, in public health for sure is uh, the upskilling of the bioinformatics and, and and what the use case is. And there's been a lot of, and I've been a part of it for sure, is is trying to, to train public health scientists on the latest and greatest skills of the technical advances, CLI, Dockers, all these things. And there's a need for that. But I think what I've found too in, in the public health side, similarly to they don't need to be on the innovative side of things, they just need to be able to run and use these tools to inform their public health. It hasn't, it's been more useful, I think, to, to teach laboratorians how public health side to just use these tools, gain access to them, even often through a GUI interface, uh, as opposed to teaching them the basics of Linux, library structures, how to program and things like that. I don't know if you could speak to that in your experience in, in, in both COG UK and maybe on the academic side too. 
Well, actually, I love the word laboratory, and I'd never heard of it until uh, I started ah. teaching. It's it's a kind yeah. of cool word, yeah. We, we just say I don't know, wet lab person or, or yeah. lab scientist or bench scientist. Um, but yeah, I guess academia isn't all cutting edge. You know, there is, when it comes to undergraduate students and master's students, yeah. there is yeah. a lot of, uh, you know, you create a course and then it, it's there for a few years and uh, people go from that. So it's not necessarily cutting edge. It is more about foundational stuff. Um, it's more when you get into the, you know, research side. Um, so I work in research institutes and they're very much more on the cutting edge. But even then, you know, a lot of time and training courses that we would have done were just upskill postdocs and whatever, you know, get them up to a baseline level, you know, teach them how to use per, the command line and teach them how to yeah. use a bit of programming or or some of the basic tools. Um, and it's only people, you know, particular people go really in depth. And even then, you know, there's no training necessarily. You'd be on Twitter or or X or as it's called now. <laughs> and uh, you'd be, uh, you, you know, you'd be looking at resources. You'd be keeping an eye on things on different Slack groups and, and whatever. You just have to tune into the area and that takes time. That takes yeah. probably many years of uh, of work to get into it. And um, within Kaki K, like again, that was particular people were experts in um in one particular area. So like building uh, primer sets and whatever, and then they yeah. built the pipelines. And you know we were all kind of uh, you know helping out doing different very different bits. But it was like the experts were doing it and then trying to make it available, and that helped a lot. But during the pandemic. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but a lot of labs went and reinvented the wheel badly. Mm. And uh, rather than just using the stuff that's there that the experts have built and absolutely tested to death, they would go, oh, no, this is easy. We'll go and do our, do our own thing. And I've reviewed and rejected papers <clears throat> where it's very clear people have come in from, um, I don't know, say cancer or plants or whatever, totally different fields, and then think, oh, virology is easy. It's just small little stuff. You know, we can yeah. apply the same stuff, you know, import it all over. And the answer is actually no, because there are little subtle differences when you come to, to microbes. And, you know, that's where you need a domain experts to really chip in and say, these methods will get you 90% of the way there, but there's these caveats which will actually trip you up and give you false results. So domain experts don't... Uh, yeah they're they're very very important and that was you know of, of whatever silver linings we can pull from the pandemic response um especially i could speak cog uk we've mentioned a number of times but also on the u.s side of things uh spheres which was led by duncan mccandle brought together the domain expertise from academia and then also the public health and even industry folks all within the same sort of form of communication so you know it kind of speak of that on my career, I've always talked thought that I was bridging that gap between the sort of innovation in academia and implementation on public health, whereas something like spheres where it was brought that much closer together. So the academics could actually see firsthand how are the tools that they're building are being impacted or, or rather being applied in impacting public health. You know, great examples of that, too, is like uh, Russ's group and Angie and all the Usher folks at UCSC being able to communicate directly with the public health laboratories who are trying to understand what the heck is Usher, how do we use this, how do lineages work, and they were able to speak directly to public health laboratories uh, to help bridge that gap. And then they made the tools. They knew how they got the feedback they needed from the public health laboratories to kind of uh, innovate even the implementation on that side to make it more accessible and usable by the public health community. And yeah, we, I, I particularly like that as well, where you could talk directly to the clinical diagnostic labs as well, and then feeding that on to, you know, kind of bigger research um, and analyses. 
because you don't normally get that feedback but this is like super rapid feedback and changes were happening uh, as as uh, things went on you know and you know people were doing the absolute best they could with the knowledge that they had at that time um but it was very very good to see uh, how these interactions work and what people care about and what people don't i know i remember at the very beginning of the pandemic when we started doing bioinformatics analysis of covid back in probably april uh, 2020 like we i didn't know what to report i didn't know what would yeah. be useful because at that time there's maybe uh, 10 20 snips not even yeah like like 10 imagine 10 snips from the the original wuhan um reference yeah. and it's like well what can you tell you can tell roughly what clusters they are and roughly yeah. how they fit together yeah. but there you know there's not too much you can do and um but we it did allow us just to kind of give an idea a flavor of what the the data could do and it was only later on that people went oh yeah that's really useful and the way we're talking about the sort of academia versus public health applications, honestly, the most fruitful endeavors we've had, even in my experience at DCLS, but in continuing in Theogen, is when there's that really close collaboration. You know, for example, and there's some uh, public health institutions in the U.S. that are so academically associated. I think that's more common abroad. And when I say abroad, I mean outside the U.S. Um, but it's not, yeah, but it's not always... Uh, the case in the U.S., but like, for example, we work with the Nevada State Public Health Laboratory and they have an explicit academic association there. And one thing that um, was, again, starkly different is their intent to publish, to, to continue to make sure that we make time to communicate back to the scientific discussion of what's happening, which was not always, it really wasn't a priority when we were at DCLS. Obviously, we wanted to show our results. We discuss it internally and have reports, maybe the occasional MMWR with CDC, but not putting manuscripts together. So I think that's been an amazing practice for us to do is, okay, how do we then now articulate exactly what we did and to, to contribute to the scientific discussion as well? And, and that can often kind of get put on the back burner when you're in a public health lab and, and the data just keeps churning and, and you keep getting samples and results. It's hard to take the time uh, to put aside to, to actually publishing a manuscript. I guess, yeah, the, the manuscripts are important um, because while you're preparing the manuscript, you know, you, you you know, you'll have done your validation and things like that. You'll have written your methods and your notebooks and whatever and your protocols, but actually it's manuscript that really pulls it all together into, you know, this yeah. nice story and it makes you think about things, you know, things that maybe you've missed. And uh, then it makes it easier for other people to reuse and implement in their own labs because they can say, well, we have this published method we can just kind of pick up and put over there. And so it makes, you know, it makes it a lot easier to translate the work from one public health lab to another um anyway uh we've been talking for a while so we leave it there and come back to this next week i think for sure this is going to be a topic that we will continuously revisit uh, given our role in both you know association with academic laboratories and public health first of many for sure but we can uh kind of end it here for today